0: So we're on page two hundred and nine, and let's get let's jump right into the pasuk that the, that this class is about, which of course, as always, this class is taken from a from a Fabrenian of the Lubavitcher Debe, from one of the Shabbos talks explaining the parsha. And this week, we're talking about the blessings that Yaakov gives to his children on his deathbed, um, and in particular, the beginning of the blessings, which is his his address to Ruvain, his oldest son. Ruvein, and then what he says to his son Yehuda. All right. Ruvain, he says, you are my firstborn. Kochi, you are my strength. Verechet oni, and the first of my might. Yater seet, v'yater oz. You have. You are superior in rank and superior in power or at least you should have been superior in rank and superior in power. But unfortunately, because you have the restlessness of water, you shall not have superiority. Because you ascended your father's couch, then you profaned God, who also ascended on my bed. So, the simple, simple meaning of this pasuk is that Yeruvain was supposed to be superior above his brothers in many ways, and he was not uh, because of what he did with his father's couch, with his father's bed. And what did he do with his father's bed? Well, let's continue on to the next page. So Rashi says, you have the restlessness of water. You're the restlessness and the impetuousness, the haste with which you showed anger, like water that rushes, like raging, like raging uh, water. Your anger flared, and you acted quickly and impetuously. And and therefore, You unfortunately will not have the superior offices that you were supposed to have. That were really planned for you. And what was the flaring, uh, impetuous anger that Reuven displayed? You ascended your father's couch. So let's go and look in the next in the next page, and we'll see what, what it is that Yaakov was upset about. Tanya, Rabbi Shimon ben Azzai the Gemara says in the Gemara Shabbos, it was taught in the Bray that Rabbi Shimon ben Azzai said, "What is the meaning of the verse Ruven? The, the, the pasuk says, Aviv,' that Ruven lay with his father's wife Bilha." The Gemara says that it's not meant to be taken literally. Reuven did not, God forbid, go with his father's wife. Rather, it means that Reuven protested the insult to his mother. He said, if my mother's younger sister, Rachel, was to be her rival, then there's no, that yet, yet there is no reason why my mother's sister's um, maidservant should be a rival to my mother. So he stood up and he rearranged the bed that Yaakov... Okay, so what happened is like this, Yaakov had four wives, the he, first wife that he wanted to marry was Rachel, his father-in-law switched the girl at the chuppah and he ended up marrying not Rachel but the older sister Leah, then he, worked for, then he worked for Rachel and he married Rachel too, so now he's married to two sisters, the older and the younger, Leah is the older one, Rachel is the younger one, Rachel is the one that he originally loved and now he's married to both of them. Both of them, their maidservants, their shivcha, uh, their, uh, was given to Yaakov as another wife. So Yaakov ended up with four wives. Two of them are referred to as the sisters, and two of them are referred to as the shvachot, the maidservants. So, what happened was, that caused this whole uproar, is that when Yaakov's beloved wife, Rachel passed away at a young age, so now Yaakov moved, Yaakov used to sleep in Ruchel's tent, Rachel's home. Um, but when Rachel died, Yaakov moved his bed and moved into Rachel's shivcha home, into, into Rachel's um, maidservant's home, um, Bilah. So Ruvain, who was the oldest son of Leah, the, the other sister, became very, very upset for his mother's honor. And said, "It's bad enough that her younger sister had to co- she had to compete with her younger sister, but that she should have to compete with her younger sister's maidservant. In other words, if Yaakov was living with Rachel most of the time and not with Leah most of the time, okay, whatever. But the, now that Rachel passed away, the honorable thing to do would be to go to Leah. But it's not what happened. Yaakov went to Bilha, so Reuven got very upset, and he literally went into Bilha's tent took his father's bed, and moved it into his mother's tent. And Yaakov got very upset, and Yaakov said to him, "Ruvain, you acted thoughtlessly, and you acted quickly without, without consideration, and you acted out of anger, and you should not have done that, it was a big mistake. And um, because of that, you are losing on some privileges that you should have had. And what, are the, what, what was so bad about what he did? So Yaakov says, <laughs> um, You insulted God, who was very involved in my marriage, and I did what I did, because this was God's plan. And when you mixed in, you didn't mess with my preferences. You were mixing with the Shekhinah. That's what he says. The Shekhinah... That is that you that was present on my bed on my couch. So Iruvein basically went above his pay grade and got mixed into things that he had no business mixing into, albeit for a very noble intention to stand up for his ima's honor. But he still had it was not his wasn't his business. He insulted and and, and uh, dishonored his father, and along with that he dishonored the Shekhinah, God's presence that was always present with his father, and because of that. He lost the privileges that he was supposed to be. And what were the privileges that he was supposed to get? Reuven was supposed to be the Kohen of the Jewish people, like the tribe of Levi. And Reuven was supposed to be the king of the Jewish people. The kings were supposed to come from him, King David, etc. The whole, the whole dynasty of majesty was supposed to come from Reuven. Instead, Levi was given the position of Kohen, and Yehuda was given the position of king, and his descendants uh, would become the kings of the Jewish people, and Reuven was left as barely the firstborn. Yaakov here, even as he's, even as he's informing Reuven of his terrible losses, he calls him Reuven Bechoriatah, you are my firstborn. But even that, he was only his firstborn to a certain degree. Yaakov had already decreed that whoever he would give the, the gifts of the firstborn would have two of his children would create two new tribes in the Jewish people. And that was given to Yosef. Ephraim and Manasseh. the two sons of Yosef, be, created two new tribes in the Jewish people. And that was supposed to happen to Reuven's children, and that didn't happen to Reuven's children. So even though he was the firstborn, he, didn't, he even, he even uh, lost some of the rights of the firstborn not all the rights but some of the rights of the firstborn and all of that because he impetuously and angrily and thoughtlessly mixed in to his father's marriage yeah sophia just unmute yourself yeah go ahead um
1: i just want to straighten things up uh, in my head uh so he first he married Leah right
0: yeah. yes
1: okay so and then he married Rachel yes uh, Rahul. so but Reuven is his firstborn so I means he didn't uh, Leia didn't have uh, had problems uh, uh, with uh, with bearing children am I right
0: Leia did not have any problems
1: but, so how is it okay but if he married Leia first why? Aren't Leah's children uh,
0: firstborn? Reuven was the firstborn from Leah.
1: Oh, from, from oh, Leah. Okay. Yeah. From, but, okay, so who died first, Leah or Rahul?
0: Rahul. Yeah. So when Rahul died, Reuven expected that Yaakov would move in with Leah, and when he didn't, Reuven got upset for, uh, for his mother. It. Okay, okay. Alright, the next text we're going now from Reuven to Yehuda. Yaakov says to Yehuda, Gur ye Yehuda, a cub and a grown lion, that's what Yehuda is. Beni Alita, from the prey, my son, you withdrew yourself. Yikemenu, he crouched, he rested like a lion, and like a lion, who can rouse him? Yehuda, The scepter shall never depart from Yehuda's family, nor the student of the law from between his feet, until the days of Moshiach, Yehuda will be the king and the leaders of the Jewish people. So Rashi says, what does it mean that you withdrew from uh, the prey? Yaakov is saying that when the brothers planned on killing Yosef, Yehuda was the one who said, Ma betza, what money do we make if we kill him? Instead, let's sell him as a slave. And by doing that, Yehuda saved Yosef's life because by selling him, he preserved his life. And Yosef went down to Egypt as a slave and eventually became the king. And the rest is history. So Yehuda <coughs> saved um, Yosef's life. So that means that's the meaning of. Uh, you withdrew from the prey. In other words, you were a lion that was ready to pounce and kill Yosef, and then you withdrew and you said, No, 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 no. Let's reconsider. Let's not kill him. Let us let us just sell him. So Yaakov is praising Yehuda for having controlled himself and withdrawn from the murderous plan. Then Yaakov also praises Yehuda for admitting a mistake during a very critical moment. This is, goes back to the story that we read a few weeks ago, where Yehuda unwittingly had impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And then later, when, 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 when it became obvious that uh, she was pregnant, and he, he, she was sentenced to death because she was actually bound to Yehuda's son, she was sort of engaged through the laws of Yibum and whatever. She was bound to Yehuda's son, and therefore she was not allowed to get pregnant with anybody else. And she got pregnant, so she was sentenced to death. And then she said that, uh, show, show Yehuda this signet ring, etc., and tell him that I'm pregnant with the babies of whichever man owns the signet ring. Yehuda recognized them, and he said, she's right, the babies are from me. And then, and then her life was spared, she was not killed. So Yehuda humiliated himself in public, Embarrassed himself to save the life of Tamar. He admitted that he was the one who impregnated her because he didn't want her to get killed. So for that too, Yehuda is praised and, uh, and he's given this position of leadership and, and kingship of the Jewish people. So now, let's just make this very, very clear. Yaakov says to Reuven, I am transferring the power of royalty from you to your brother Yehuda, why? For two reasons. First of all, because you violated my privacy when you moved, mixed into my marriage, and um, you Ye- and Yehuda is virtuous because he held himself back from killing Yosef, and he admitted when uh, when he did the wrong thing, he did Shuva. He wasn't too proud. So the Rebbe asks a very, very powerful and obvious question. Is that really a good reason to snatch this uh, privilege from Reuven and give it to Yehuda? Was Reuven that bad? Let's go, the Rebbe says, let's go and, and examine the story of Yosef and let's see who really, who really was trying to be good to Yosef. So the Torah says in text 5a, The brothers said to one another, Hey, look, the dreamer is coming. This is when when they tried to kill Yosef. So now the brothers said, Let's kill him, and let's throw him into one of the pits, and let's tell our father that a wild beast ate him up, and then we'll see what will become of his dreams. But Reuven heard, and Reuven saved him from their hands, and he said, Do not deal him a deadly blow. Do not kill him. And Reuven said to them, Do not shed blood. Instead, throw him into this pit which is in the desert, but do not lay a hand upon him. And the Torah itself says, what was Reuven's plan? What's so great about, about not killing him but throwing him in a pit in the desert? Leman la had a plan. He says, guys, let's throw him in the pit. Let him suffer in the pit. And Reuven said to himself, when the brothers leave, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take him out of the pit and I'm going to bring him home. Now, Ruvain certainly tried to save Yosef in that way, and that's what the brothers did. They threw him in the pit, and it was only after that that Yehuda said, "Why should we let him die? We're not going to make any money. Let's sell him as a slave, and uh, and make some money." So the, so the Rebbe says, "Now you tell me who's more virtuous: Yehu- Ruvain, who actually tries to save Yosef and bring him home, or Yehuda, who saves Yosef." Not be, doesn't seem to be out of noble intentions, but out of out of a desire to make some money, and yet we're saying Yaakov is saying that he's so proud of Yehuda for saving Yosef, and he's so disappointed with Reuven for what he did with his with Yaakov's marriage, and also he praises Yehuda for, for admitting and doing tshuva over his mistake. Do you know where Reuven was? When they sold Yosef into slavery, why wasn't Yehuda there? I'm sorry, why wasn't Ruvain there when they when Yehuda and his brothers sold Yosef into slavery? Obviously, he wasn't there because he didn't try to stop it. So where was he? So if you look in the in the text 5B in the Medrash, it says, the Heikanaya, where was Ruvain when Yosef got sold as a slave? Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Rabbi Eliezer says, Bisako Ubitaanito. Reuven was busy doing tshuva for what he had done, mixed into his father's marriage nine years earlier. Nine years later, Reuven is still doing tshuva, still repenting, still beating his chest for having mixed into his father's marriage inappropriately, he's still doing tshuva nine years later. And what kind of tshuva is he doing? He's covered himself in sackcloth and put ashes on his head, and he's fasting, and he's literally repenting, beating himself up over what he did. That's why he wasn't there when the brothers sold Yosef. He was waiting for them to leave, so he, le- he left... He figured, I'll go do tshuva, continue with my tshuva, and I'll come back, and I'll take Yosef home. But, but, so now the next text says, Yoshav Ruven al-Abor, Ruven later returned to the pit, Ve'hinei, Yosef Babor. He comes, he says, My God, where's Yosef? Va'yikrat begadav, he tore his clothing, over grief, over Yosef. Vayosha he goes running back to his brothers, Va'yomer, and he says, Where's the boy? Va'ani Now what am I going to do with myself? What did you do to him? So you see how deeply Reuven cared about Yosef, and how deeply Reuven cared about everything. He cared about his mother's honor, and when his father chastised him, he didn't stop doing tshuva for many years, and when his brother was in danger, he cared very deeply. How could you condemn a man for this? So... Before we continue, I want to make a little bit of a detour and talk about the Hasidic perspective on the characters of the Torah. When, when you study Hasidus especially, when you study Hasidus, you come to discover that when the Torah, when the Torah portrays somebody as being righteous, Excuse me, and when I say Torah, I mean the written Torah, the oral Torah, the whole Torah. Rashi, Gemara, the Medrash, the Torah itself. When the Torah portrays somebody in the Torah as being righteous, Hasidus takes that definition of righteous to an extreme and will never find a real flaw in such a person. And even if the Torah describes a flaw in such a person, Hasidus will look at it and say that relative to his towering spiritual stature, it would be a flaw. But relative to you and me, it would be a mitzvah. So for example, the most famous example, God tells Moshe to speak to the rock and water will come out for the Jewish people. And Moshe hits the rock instead of speaking to it and, uh, and God tells him, for that you have to stay in the desert, you can't go into Israel. So now if you study Hasidus, you'll discover that no possibility that Moshe did that as an act of rebellion against God. Because Moshe did not have it in him to act rebellious against God. He didn't have it in him. So if he did something that seems rebellious, it had to have come from his righteous Impulse. So maybe what he did was the right thing, but not the right thing for that moment. Or what he did was good, but not good enough. Or what he did was very special, but it wasn't what God wanted at that moment. So you have to define sin very carefully. For the average Joe, a sin is a moment when we forget about God and forget about what God wants. A person sees a delicious, delicious piece of food that's not kosher... And the person says, I'm sorry, I can't resist, forget about God, and he eats it. He doesn't eat it to please God. He eats it despite God. Usually it's not to spite God. Usually it's just despite God. He's not eating it hachis, He's just eating it uh, teavon. He's hungry and he forget about God, the food is too exciting. So he eats it and he forgets all about God. tzaddik, you made it, huh? a tzaddik on the other hand come a tzaddik on the other hand does not forget about God period he can't forget about God because all he has is a godly soul all he has is a good righteous impulse so then if he does something that seems like a sin you have to ask yourself why would a good impulse tell a person to do something like that so you find a holy motive for what he did so for example Moshe who hits the rock instead of speaking to the rock. There's many explanations, but the most famous of them is that Moshe didn't want to humiliate the Jewish people and thought that God wouldn't want him to humiliate the Jewish people by talking to the rock and then the rock obeying because when Moshe talks to the Jewish people, they don't obey. So how would it look if the Jews don't listen when Moshe talks to them and a rock does listen when Moshe talks to them? It would embarrass the Jewish people. So Moshe thought, God doesn't want me to do that. And then you can say either that God was disappointed in him, that God was disappointed in him and said that I Eidavka I, I, did want to humiliate the Jewish people, and, or you could say that God was proud of him, thank you Moshe for understanding what I really wanted, whatever. But either way, it's not a sin. He wasn't rebelling against God. He was doing what he thought God wanted him to do at that moment. Was he right? Was he wrong? Doesn't matter, because to our, for, compared to us, it can't begin to be a sin because it was for God. So the, and the same thing is true about every story, about every r- righteous character in the Torah that does something that seems sinful. We never just assume that the guy forgot about God and did something mean or did something malicious or did something cruel because they didn't have it in them to be cruel. And this, of course, goes back to the Al Rebbe's definition of what a tzaddik is. Because the truth is, until the al Rebbe, really, there was a very, very vague title, tzaddik. Even now, every time you do somebody a favor, they say, oh, he's a tzaddik, you're a big tzaddik. But that's, obviously, that's not the, the true uh, uh, position, identity of a tzaddik. Is not anybody who ever does anything good. A tzaddik is somebody you know when you do something righteous and until you sin, I guess you could be called a tzaddik. And then when you and then when you and then when you sin, you're called a rasha. And then when you do tshuva, then you're about chuva. So the idea that somebody is a lifelong tzaddik—what does that mean? The al Abba said in Tanya that the difference between a tzaddik and a regular person is that a tzaddik ain't lo yetsahara, doesn't have yetzahara. doesn't have an evil inclination. Therefore, it's not just that he doesn't sin, he doesn't have the ability to sin. Then you realize that such a tzaddik is very rare indeed. Because most of the people that we look up and say tzaddikim are actually on the highest level below tzaddik. They are tempted to sin, and yet they control that temptation most of the time or all the time. But a tzaddik is not tempted to sin. A tzaddik is placed in the world to inspire the people around them not in order to, to exercise the great gift of free choice, because a tzaddik really doesn't have free choice. He only has the Tov. And he only has the choice to serve God. And sometimes he makes the wrong choice of how to serve God. But he's always serving God. So the same thing is here when we talk about Reuven. We're never going to stoop to a level and say, oh, Reuven was an outcast. Reuven was a black sheep. Reuven was a bad guy. Even Rashi, who was long before Hasidus, Rashi points out that the Torah says back when the, in the story with the tent mix-up happened, that the Torah says Ruvain did what he did and the children of Israel were 12. To testify that Reuven still was considered one of the children of Israel, he did not sin. How can you say he didn't sin? Yaakov was so upset at him. Yaakov was upset at him because Yaakov expected more from him. But not because he sinned in any kind of gross or crass way that you and I would, cons- would, would, would uh, identify a sin. But God forbid to say that Reuven did what he did out of, a, out of a low impulse. It was all righteous. And Reuven was righteous. And Yehuda was righteous. They were all righteous. They were all tzaddikim. Even selling their brother Yosef needs to be viewed through the lens of the idea that they were all tzaddikim. You have to understand what would motivate them to do that. Everything that they did. These were not rotten people. These were not gangsters. And they were not just average guys like you and me. These were tzaddikim, every one of them. So therefore, when we study their story, we try to understand their story in the context of them being righteous people with not an ounce of evil impulse in them. Then why would they want to get their brother killed? It's a very good question. But whatever the answer ends up being, it remains the question to ask, why would righteous people want to do something so bad? But not that they say, okay, they weren't righteous. They were righteous. The Torah teaches us that they were righteous. The oral Torah teaches us, and Hasidism in particular testifies, and once you learn from Tanya, you learn that a tzaddik doesn't have the ability to do something bad. And if somebody does something truly evil, it means that he wasn't a tzaddik. It means that he was a beynuni, or some very high righteous level, but a level that always has to be on the lookout for doing something evil. Okay. Anyway, that was a par- par- parenthetical. Now we continue and try to understand what is it that Yaakov saw in Reuven and Yaakov saw in Yehuda that made Yaakov choose Yehuda over Reuven. So we go to Chesidus. We go to a Mimer of the previous Rebbe, the Friday Rebbe, on page 216. And, we, and he addresses the spiritual element of royalty. And by by examining the spiritual element of royalty, we'll come to a better understanding of the concept of royalty, which will give us obviously a more serious understanding of what happened here, because it's not that Yaakov told Reuven you're a bad guy, right? We can't jump. You can't jump beyond what happened. Yaakov did not condemn Reuven to be a God forbid a, a, a Russia. Yaakov just says you can't be the king anymore. Not you don't have to be a king in order to be a tzaddik. 99.99% of the Jewish people are not the king. Even, even uh, uh, the, the Kohen Gadol is not a king. doesn't mean he's not a good guy. It just means that he's not cut out to be the king. So, what's so what is unique about being a king? So let's read. The sphere of royalty, Svirat Malchut is different from the other Svirat. This can be explained in terms of the quality of the human soul. In the case of the attribute of kindness, kindness can exist even if there is no body to be kind to. One who is inherently a good person has goodness and kindness in their heart, and if they happen to encounter someone who needs it, they will extend that goodness and kindness happily. Moreover, this internal quality of kindness can manifest as a feeling even if it isn't directed at anyone per se, as seen in the story of Avram Avinu, who always experienced the feeling of kindness, And that's, for example, you find that after his bris, when God made it exceptionally hot outside in order to discourage any passers-by from burdening Avraham to have to host them, it bothered Avraham that nobody was passing by because the kindness was, was boiling inside of him and he had nobody to be kind to. So you see that kindness can exist very strongly even when there is no one that needs your kindness. Because kindness can exist out of, its, of, its, of its own accord. However, the attribute of royalty, which is the sole quality of preeminence, cannot exist without another person. As we see empirically, someone lost in a barren desert, devoid of other people, does not experience the attribute of preeminence. Preeminence in, in, in Hebrew is hitnatut. Hit hit ut means a feeling of You could say superiority, but superiority is a bad, is a negative implication. This is a feeling of, like you feel feel elite, you feel special, you feel above the fray. But if there is nobody around you, there's nobody to feel above, there's nobody to feel superior to. So Hasidus distinguishes between certain human characteristics that don't necessarily require anybody else to be in your company in order to experience those feelings. Like you can feel an overwhelming sense of generosity and kindness and have nobody to be generous and kind to. However, Malchut demands that there be someone else. Like we say about a king. A person cannot be a king over himself. A person cannot be a king over nobody. In order to be a king, you need a people. As, as it says here in the Medrish in the next text, Haam Mamlichin It is the nation that crowns a king. The king cannot appoint himself if the people do not accept him as their king. It has to come from the outside. You can't announce yourself king over people. That is not at all a king. That's just a that's just a a master. That's just a dictator. You can can use the word king. Oh, I'm now your king. doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. You could also say, I'm now your father. That doesn't mean that I'm your father. And just because somebody says, I'm your king, doesn't mean that they're your king. If you accept them and say, you are now our king, now he becomes a king. Because malchut demands others. In order for malchut to exist, there needs to be someone to be a melech over. You can't just be a king. So, what does that lead to? That leads to the Jewish attitude towards monarchs in general. As we say here in the laws of kings in Rambam, in text 8. Just as the Torah has granted the king great honor and obligated, everyone, obligated all the Jews to revere the king, so too the Torah commands the king to be lowly and empty at heart. In other words, to be completely void of any ego. The king as it's written regarding, regarding King David, Libi chalal my heart is hollow, meaning I have no yetzahara, I have no eagle. Nor should he treat Israel with overbearing arrogance, as it is written, he should not lift up his heart above his brothers. That's what it says about the king, rum meachav, the Jewish king, which is so counterintuitive, a Jewish king may not feel that he is superior in a negative way. Only he should feel the responsibilities of leadership. He should be gracious and merciful to the small and the great, involving himself in their good and their welfare. He should protect the honor of even the humblest of men. And when he speaks to the people as a community, he should speak gently. As we find that the king says, listen my brothers, listen my people. Similarly it says, if today you will be a servant to these people, should always conduct himself with great humility. The king, God sees the king as the servant of the people. Even though the law dictates that the people have to be the servants of the king, but the king has to know that he is the servant of the people. And that is the Jewish expectation of a Jewish king. So the message that they're trying to bring across here with all these teachings from Chassidus is that a king, which of course is the ultimate manifestation of leadership, a leader, a king, it needs to be all about the other person. All about them. It can't be at all about your identity as a king. It has to be all about your devotion to your subjects. That's the definition of a king. Someone who is completely and utterly dedicated to the needs of the people. That's a leader and that's a king. Yeah. I just
1: have a little related but unrelated. How how did King David... Become the king.
0: I mean, you don't have a vote. You just inheritance. What, what is the it? the prophet of the time appointed him king over the Jewish people and told the Jewish people, "This is your Which, king, what? Samuel. Samuel." Samuel. Okay. okay. So, so, he, he, so one person. The pro- if there's a prophet. Yeah. If there's a prophet and the Jewish people accept this prophet then the Jews accept whoever the mm-hmm. whoever the prophet says should be the king, so David was appointed the king by the by the uh, prophet Samuel. Um. This requires just a little bit more explanation so please so please bear with me over here. You know, if you the just a basic understanding of the Sefirot. You know, Moshe, I think you once uh, said that there is a term that's used for the Jewish people, Amsegula, right? Amsegula, Chadodi, we talk we, we refer to the Jewish people as a treasure nation. The Torah says, "You them the Amsegula." The Jewish people are Am Segula, which means a treasure of a nation. God, tre, tre, God sees us as his treasure. Now, segol, which is segula, which means treasure, has the same root as the Hebrew vowel, Segol. The Hebrew vowel, Hebrew vowels, there are several vowels, kamat, patach, and one of them is called segol. Segol. I'm sorry. Segol. A dot. Two dots on two top dots, yeah. and one dot underneath in the middle. Oh, yeah. So one, two, three. One, two, three. Um, and of course, just like the Hebrew letters that are that are sacred and meaningful and have depth, the Hebrew vowels, their shape also has depth and meaning and, and mystical implication. And so the, the vowel Segol. So the vowel Segol. The, uh, this positioning of one dot on the right and one dot on the left and then one dot on the bottom in the center is the basic makeup of the sfirot of the spiritual elements, which is right extreme, left extreme, center. Extreme to the right, extreme to the left, center. So just the most, the most uh, famous example, you have a parent or a teacher. A child is in your care. You can treat them with extreme right, which is complete generosity and and uh, kindness. You can treat them with extreme left, which is complete discipline and lack of any kind of of uh, tolerance, which is which is a sort of an effective way of parenting and teaching. Extreme discipline and extreme very demanding and not generous. Both of those are no good. Extreme kindness is no good because a child requires discipline. Extreme discipline is no good because a child requires love. So both of them are no good. But the fact that they're no good because the child will suffer from both extremes is not just a practical reality. It's because extremes are not selfless. A teacher who is extremely to the right, extremely kind, is because his his or her nature is to be very kind. And so therefore, you can ruin the child because it's about you, not about the child. So you have a teacher who just said, oh, I could never raise my voice at a child. Oh, you could never? What if a child needs you to raise your voice at her? Oh, I could never. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Right. On the other hand, a teacher who says, oh, I think uh, giving compliments just makes children soft. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not softy. I'm not like that. Oh, you're not like that. If it's about you, then you're going to ruin the kid. Because in any time you treat somebody without taking into consideration the somebody who you're treating, but instead acting on your strong feelings, even if your feelings are positive feelings, but you'll, you will inevitably damage the person because you're not taking into consideration what they need. So, you may be giving them way too much than they can handle, whether it's too much kindness or too much discipline or too little compassion or too little or too much demanding, whatever it is. The reason that would be is because you're not taking the kid into consideration, you're just following your nature. So, Therefore, the right and the left are not good enough. You need to have one in the center, which is a blend of both, which is Tiferet. Tiferet, so there's Chesed, which is extreme right, Gevurah, which is extreme left, and Tiferet, which is a blend of both and is in the center. And what's so special about Tiferet? So, so most people think what's so special is that it's a blend of both. It's perfect, it's a good balance. That's not what's so special about it. What's so special about it is that Tiferet can be either Chesed or Gevura depending on what the recipient needs. So therefore, the classic example of Tiferet is Rachmonis. Pity? Pity or or mercy. That means a child who doesn't doesn't, um, evoke your feelings of kindness because the child is not acting in a way that that uh, makes you feel like you want to be kind to them. But anyways, you're kind to them. You're not Gevura. You don't go harsh, because you know that this kid, Nebuch, <laughs> he needs kind, he needs compassion. You don't feel like being compassionate, because the kid is obnoxious. But you give it to him anyways, because you know that that's what he needs. And that's the, that's the difference between Chesed and Rachmanut. Chesed, which means kindness, and Rachmanut, which means Compassion, compassion, or mercy, or pity, is that kindness is is thoughtless kindness. I'm going to be kind to you whether you like it or not. Or like my father was going to call his first book, "Shut Up, I Love You." <laughs> I love you whether you want it or not, whether you like it or not. Too bad, I love you.
1: That's a great title.
0: But uh, but it's not about you. It's about me. <laughs> and tiferet is not like that. Tiferet is about you. That I am I am in a mood of disciplining you. You have evoked my anger, but yet I am going to hold myself back and I'm going to to treat you nicely or I'm going to embrace you, hug you, because I see that that's what you need. It's not what I want, but that's what you need. And so Tiferet is about the recipient. And that's why Tiferet is beautiful. That's why the um, Chesed they're extremes, extremes are not beautiful. Even if they're extreme good, it's not beautiful. Beautiful is a blend. So, like, even the prettiest color in the world, it's not really, it doesn't rise to the level of beauty until you figure out a way to have it complemented with a different color. And you figure out a way to blend colors. Same in music. A very nice key, a very nice note is all great, but until you introduce harmony and you figure out how to blend things that are not identical, it's not really considered beautiful. And the same thing is here. A person who is a Balchesed, it's great, it's not beautiful. A person who is a Gibor, is great, but it's not beautiful. A person who is Rahmanut, uh, that means that even when he's in a bad mood, he can be good if you need him to be good. Even when he's feeling stingy, he'll give you money if you need it. Even when he's angry, he'll be patient if that's what you need. And even if when he's in a great mood, he will discipline you if that's what you need. Whatever you need, that's what the person will give because, he, because the person is dedicated not to himself and his, and his opinion and his feelings, but to you. And that, Rebbe is trying to say here, is a hallmark of leadership. Leadership does not mean you are a good man. There are a lot of good people. There are a lot of good people who never hurt anybody and always do the right thing and take, them, take their responsibilities very seriously. But, it's, but it doesn't rise to the level of leadership because it's not all about someone else. A lot of it has to do with themselves. So now, let's look at this text number 9. This is from the Rebbe Sfabrengi, from the Sicha. Ruvain had the restlessness of water, and he hastened to display his anger. After concluding that his father's bed belonged in Leah's tent, he got upset at his father, which was someone else, and acted swiftly and immediately to interfere with his father's bed, thus hurting another person, which was his father. And this behavior is the opposite of being thoughtful of others. So Reuven, in his anger, hurt his father. Why? Because he was indignant. And you could even say that his indignation was righteous. But it was his righteous indignation. And that, Yaakov said, very, very nice that you stuck up for your mother, but that is not a leader. You cannot strike out and hit somebody because you're feeling righteously indignant. You have to take them into consideration. And you never considered that perhaps I had a good reason for what I did. You didn't think, of, you didn't think maybe there was a good, good, a good uh, spiritual uh, intent behind my moving my bed. And you just struck out. You just, you just lashed out. Like, that's thinking about yourself, not about others. Even though, like we said before, Ruven was, God forbid, not a bad person. And when he thought about himself... It doesn't mean that he became selfish. It means that he thought about the righteous indignation that he was experiencing and, and he thought that he was doing the right thing. But he wouldn't have done that if he would have thought about someone else and not about himself. What about Yehuda? The difference between Yehuda's withdrawing from prey and Ruvain's is this. When Yehuda withdrew from prey, he actually saved somebody. This, this, this irony that Nebuchadnezzar said to had this grandmaster plan to save ya- Yosef and bring him home. What happened in the end? His plan did not work out. He did not save Yosef. Why didn't he save Yosef? I mean, he, he got Yosef thrown in a pit and not killed, but then he couldn't stop them from save, selling Yosef into slavery. Why couldn't he save Yosef from the slavery? Where was he? Doing tshuva. Doing tshuva. which means that for the most righteous reason possible, again, it's not a condemnation of Reuven as a person, for the most righteous reason conceivable, Reuven was not there for his brother because he was busy trying to correct himself. He was busy trying to atone for his own sin, and because he was distracted by his own shortcomings, and that caused him to let his brother get sold into slavery. His father is saying to him, you are a tzaddik, but you are not a king. You are a very righteous man, my son. But you are not cut out for kingship because you are too enwrapped in your own experience. Not, God forbid, that you're a bad guy. You're very good and your tshuva is admirable. Nine years later, he's still doing tshuva. But, but you cannot do tshuva at somebody else's expense. Because that means that as righteous as you are, you are blind to other people, to a certain extent, because of your own experiences. So you are a great guy, you can be a rabbi, you can be a rabbi shul or whatever, you can't be the king. Because you have to be there for the people 100%. When Yehuda said, ma betza," when Yehuda said, why should we, why should we kill him? Let's sell him, we'll make some money. He saved Yosef from the brothers. It was a little, bit cock- uh, 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 a little bit cockeyed, right? He's trying to make money. But the bottom line is he saved him. And Reuven's bottom line is he didn't save him. Yep. So Reuven was full of noble intentions. Yehuda, you could say, maybe not so full of noble intentions. But bottom line, who succeeded in saving a Jewish life? Yehuda and not Ruvain. Sorry? Could it be also that Yehuda knew the nature of his brothers and acted accordingly? You could say that. Yeah. Because you know... You could say but it's not, it's not, you know, it, but it looks like Ruvayne... Maybe, maybe the little greed within them that could make some money uh-huh, could, uh-huh. Could, could, you know, Interesting. draw them to... So he knew his brothers better, yeah. and Ruvayne was too idealistic. Mm-hmm. It's very possible, because that's, that, that is basically what the Rebbe is saying. It's very good and nice to be an idealist, but if you're going to be the king of the people, the people can't afford that. The people need to know that you know what to do for them that's going to benefit them. Your high-minded ideal is not going to help them. Although, of course, you should have high-minded ideals, no question about it. But you also have to be able to connect with the people and their reality. So this, again, goes back to the chesed, tiferet, a person who is a, a Bal chesed, chesed is higher than tiferet. On the, on the, on the hierarchy of sefirot, chesed is higher than tiferet. So, a person who's on the level of chesed is more noble, so to speak, than a person who's on the level of tiferet. But the person on the level of tiferet is closer to the recipient. So, therefore, you may say he's not as high ranking as a bal chesed, but much more useful for people and for the world and for God than, than the bal chesed. So, a very great ideal is wonderful if you know how to use it to help people. But if you only know how to idealize about it, how to idealize about it, but you don't know how to make it help anybody, then, then, then you are a wonderful person, but you're not cut out for leadership. Yes, yeah, Sophia?
1: So, I think, uh, perhaps, you know, that's why uh, the thought or the teachings uh, um, in Judaism, basically, this is this is where we have, basically, the concept that the thoughts are not as that important as the action is yeah. Uh, yeah. Am I, uh, right? Yeah. So that is uh, I, I can't remember exactly but basically it's what you do is more important what's in your thoughts, okay but if, uh, but what you're doing is more important than yeah.
0: your thing yeah for sure, which is tricky because your thoughts are what guide you on what to do so your, your action needs to respect your thoughts because your thoughts are the driver of the car that knows where, where you need to go. But, but like you're saying, the bottom line is you need to go. So it's like we said, you can't not have high ideals. You must have high ideals or you won't know what to do. But on the other hand, your idealism cannot get in the way of your action because even the highest ideal is not as great as one helpful action. But in order for the actions to be helpful... They need to be guided by wisdom. You know, like today, nowadays, there's, there's this idea of the damage done by people that say, well, we have to do something. No, 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 no. No,
1: you do something.
0: No, you, no, on the contrary. I'm saying this feeling that people have when they're standing around, oh, we have to do something. And then they end up doing something that's very damaging. Mm-hmm. Oh. And you say, why did you do that? They say, well, we couldn't just stand there. Well, if what you're going to do is going to make things worse, then yeah, do stand there, just stand there. So yes, Seichel needs to guide the action. You can't have action without Seichel, or then you end up, you know, like, I'll tell you a funny story. Somebody once came to the previous Rebbe, and they were arguing about uh, whether it's okay to uh, compromise on Jewish religion in order to attract more people to come to Shul. You know what I mean? Take down the Mechitza, uh, don't, uh, don't be so strict about all the laws, and you'll get more people in the door. So the previous Rebbe said, no, that's counterproductive. What's the point of getting people in the door if you're not going to give them the Yiddishkeit that, they, that you brought them there for? So no, you can't do that. In fact, you'll make things worse. And the guy said, well, Rabbi, I have to disagree with you because, because uh, you're insisting that even though there's a fire of, of assimilation burning, we have to go and look for pure filtered water to, uh, to put out the fire. And when there's a fire burning, you use any water. You don't go and look for the most pristine spring water to put out the fire. And you're being ridiculous. So if we're going to put out the fires of assimilation with some slightly polluted water of compromised Judaism, but at least we'll put out the fire of assimilation. So the Rebbe said to him, you think that's such a great metaphor, but even somebody with such a short-sighted vision would know that when you're about to put out a fire and you see a bucket full of liquid, you must first make sure that it's not gasoline. <laughs> So you think, oh, what's the big difference? It's just brown water, it's just this, it's just that. Okay, fine, brown, brown water is no problem. But, but say, oh, it doesn't make a difference, any liquid, just throw it on. No, if it's gasoline, it'll make it worse. So, so the, uh, the idea that Yehuda should save Yosef, um, should, should act while Ru'uven has ideals, the point is not that, Yosef, that Yehuda has no ideals. The point is that Yehuda was motivated to save his brother, and it was in a little bit of an unconventional way, this idea of let's make money out. So it was a little polluted water. But not that it was gonna, gonna throw uh, fuel on the fire. So yeah, you gotta do something, and action is king, but the action must be guided by values and by sechel and common sense. So let's continue with this text number 10, because this is really the, the key of it all. When Yehuda said, What is the gain? He saved Yosef from the brother's plan to kill him. And he took him out of the pit, which had snakes and scorpions. Although Reuven's intentions were nobler than Yehuda's, but that has to do only with his own personal qualities. You're right. Reuven was more noble. But so what? Has nothing to do with his ability to benefit and save Yosef. When he said, Let's not deal him a deadly blow, throw him in the pit in order to save him from their hands, to return him to his father, it tells us about his intentions. But practically... That did not extricate Yosef from the danger of starving to death in the pit, or, or having what happened to him that the brothers sold him because Reuven was busy doing tshuva, and the and of course to save him as it says in text eleven in the Rashi Ruach Hakodesh God Himself testifies that Reuven had said this only to save. Yosef. His, his intentions were 100% noble. He did not want Yosef to suffer in the pit. He wanted to go and save Yosef. He said, I'm the firstborn and I'm the eldest and I have to be the one to save him because the sin will be attributed only to me. So he did feel the responsibility. But he didn't think about what will really help Yosef. Instead, he just thought about what might be a heroic thing for him to do because he felt responsible to do something. And then Reuven comes back and the boy is gone. So now we go back to the other other issue of the tshuva. We said that one of the reasons why Yaakov chose Yehuda over Reuven is because Yehuda admitted publicly publicly did tshuva on what had happened with Tamar. So the Rebbe said, once again, Yehuda's tshuva is nothing compared to Reuven's tshuva. Yehuda and Reuven both did something wrong for for somebody of their stature. Yehuda did something with, with Tamar, and Ruvain moved his father's bed, and both of them did tshuva. What does what the Torah say about Yehuda's tshuva? Tzadka mimeni. Two words. She's right. It's from me. That's it. We don't find in the Torah anything else about, about uh, Yehuda doing tshuva. It was just a quick admission of guilt. Ruvain, it says, was doing tshuva and weeping and, and, and beating his chest for nine, 12 years. So the Rebbe says, how could you favor Yehuda Because of the fact that he admitted and did tshuva over Ruvain, who did a much better tshuva than him. Much deeper, much longer, much more introspection. So if you look at the bottom of 2.23, Yehuda admitted that he sinned with Tamar and was not embarrassed to do so. And what was his end? He inherited the life of the world to come. Reuven admitted that he sinned with his father's bed and was not, not embarrassed. And what was his end? He too inherited the life of the world to come. Who served for the impetus to, uh, for Reuven to admit his sin? It was Yehuda. Okay, no, not, they're not, they didn't quote here what the Rebbe said to Fabrenian. The Rebbe said, again, you find in the, in the matter of tshuva that Yehuda's tshuva led to, the rescue, to saving three lives. Yehuda's tshuva was not as elaborate and was not as deep and was not as spiritual. He just publicly admitted that he did something wrong. Quick admission. But then he saved Tamar and her two babies, Peretz and, and Zarach. Reuven did tshuva, a long, drawn-out, passionate, emotional, grief-written chuva. and what was the result of his chuva? He almost got Yosef killed. So the Nebuchadnezzar says you see a pattern here, both in regards to to their efforts to save Yosef, and also in regards to their tshuva over their personal mistakes, that Yehuda, although his efforts were not as, or were not as uh, fancy spiritually speaking, or not as glowing, but they were effective. Reuven was much deeper, much more introspection. His tshuva lasted years and years. He could not forgive himself, which is what tshuva is supposed to be. But on the other hand, his tshuva nearly got Yasef killed, and Yehuda's tshuva saved three lives. Would you say that because of that, Judaism is is a very practical religion? Yeah, that's what Sophia said before. That's what... Oh, oh, I'm sorry. No, that's what she said before. Action is king. Ha-ma'asehu ha Yeah. Yeah, Judaism is very practical. that that, uh, when when you hear... You hear... uh, uh, Class in Judaism is all about action. Right. You go to other religions, believe, and, you know, the Bible. And it's it's really not. It's not. There is no question asked. There is. It's only believe,
1: believe, believe. Right. We are very, very
0: practical. Action oriented, for sure. Yeah, Even though there's 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 mountains of philosophy. And, oh, yeah. and passionate uh, Kabbalistic teachings and spiritual but it all is at only the end,
1: at the end, very it's
0: only valuable if it leads to a mitzvah yeah, there's other religions that if you do something and you don't believe and you don't
1: have the religious content to it your action is
0: dismissed
1: Dismissed.
0: yeah so exactly so just two points over here again we're not condemning Ruvay I'm sorry that I keep repeating this But there just is this, there is an inclination nowadays. Maybe it always existed. You know, with that, when somebody is elevated by a community, there's always those people that try to drag him down. Not because they think he's bad, but because he's elevated by everybody else. Anti-hero. You know, oh, you guys think he's so good. You see it happening in America now. That you have this movement to tear down all the people that we ever thought were heroes. Just tear them all down. And you find this excuse, this guy had a slave, and this guy this, and this guy that. Just tear down all the heroes. It's a foolish thing for a society to do to itself. A good society like ours. And especially in Judaism, there is this, this, this uh, cynical, you know, so pseudo-intellectual movement that, you know, there's just too much unquestioning loyalty to Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, you know, David, and they find something bad to say about all of them and say maybe we should examine once again who are the heroes of the Torah and who are the villains of the Torah but it's a terrible thing to do to a tradition and it's, and it's misguided so therefore I don't want to sound like we're piling on Ruvein. how any of us could reach to Ruvain's level the same thing about Noach you know everybody says Noach was a tzaddik only in his generation because he didn't save anybody else from his generation if he would have been next to avram he would be considered nothing and then people go after noah like as if he was some kind of a like he was some kind of a of a, of a scoundrel how any of us should be able to stand up and do what's right in a in a crime ridden society like the one noah lived in so what, when you say noah is condemned in Judaism, for not having saved anyone other than his own family, you have to say that with reverence and respect and only if it's going to make you a better person. But not God forbid to, 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 um, to condemn Noach. Noach the Torah says was Ish sadik tamim. Are you, do you think God says about you that you are Ish sadik tamim? You think that you resist all of the, all of the trends of the society? We're, not, we're just regular people. Noach was a tzadik. Yeah, he was a tzaddik that the Torah says should have made other tzaddikim. Okay, that doesn't give you a right to condemn him. That gives God a right to condemn him. Not you. He gives you a right to learn a lesson from God's condemnation of him. But not does give you a right to say anything bad about him. Halavai, you should be on his level. Halavai, you should be on that, on that failure of a level. That you're only perfect in your own world, but you don't help other people be perfect. So, same thing with Ruvain. We're not here, God forbid, to condemn Ruvain and say, oh, Ruvain's a bad guy. He was just immersed in himself, didn't care about others. He cared deeply about others. He cared so much about others that it actually impeded his ability to help others, which we can all identify with. You get too emotional, you get too worked up, and suddenly it's, it's all about your feelings, and they're, and they're all compassionate feelings, but doesn't help the person. You have somebody who's not so stylish. Somebody who's not so uh, righteous, maybe. Maybe not so pious. But always figures out how to help. Always figures out how to do the right thing. The right thing meaning the helpful thing. And that is, the ne- that is what is demanded, first and foremost, of a Jewish leader. That he should model for the people, above anything else, he should model how to always... Think about what the other person needs. Not about what is my righteous act to do right now, what will get me into heaven, what, what, what will get people to think that I'm a very helpful person. Don't think about yourself at all. Forget about it. Think about what the other person needs at this moment. And then, 99% of the time, you will do something that will make God very proud. Whereas if you think about how I could be righteous, and how I could be saintly, and how I could be at tzaddik, very often, you'll do a righteous thing, but you'll miss an opportunity to help someone. And in Yiddishkeit, it's always got to be about helping someone else. Always has to be about Avodat Hashem or Ahavat Yisrael. Serving God or serving people, never about serving myself. It's just not what it's about. Yeah, you can do it, nobody will condemn you. You can't say you're a Russia, right? God forbid, we're not talking about Reuven being a Russia. Talk about, let's say you have a person who sits and learns Torah all day and fulfills all the mitzvot and never sins. And God says to him, I'm proud of you. You're a good guy. But this is not what I want from the Jewish people. I want to see you helping each other. I want to see you helping someone. You're very righteous. I have nothing bad to say about you. But come on. Come on. So Moshe Rabbeinu, He's immersed in his spiritual life, and God yanks him out of his spiritual meditation and tells him, go to Pharaoh, help the people, get them meat, get them chicken, get them birds, get them fish, get them that. Oh, why He was a middle, learning tighter? What'd you bother him for? Because you have to help the people. You gotta help people. And that's why we're called Amsegula. Amsegula means we know the right extreme, we know the left extreme, and we always land on the middle. Because the middle is where it's not about your good mood, it's not about your bad mood, it's not about you at all. It's about the other person. The other person needs chesed, chesed. The other person needs givura, givura. Whatever it is, you're there for them. And that is leadership. That is, in a word, that is leadership. When it's not about you at all, and it's all about the other person.